Welcome to KiteLine, a weekly radio program from WFHB that focuses on issues in Indiana's prison system and beyond. Behind the prison walls, a message is called a kite. Whispered words, a note passed hand to hand, a request submitted to the guards for medical care. Illicit or not, sending a kite means trusting that other people will bear it farther along until it reaches its destination. Here on KiteLine, we hope to share these words across the prison walls. This week, we're airing selections from a panel discussion that took place earlier this month here in Bloomington. Andrea Ritchie and Victoria Law, both of whom were featured on KiteLine earlier this month, sit alongside Andrea Sterling at a panel called Building Community Resilience. In it, these women discuss the myriad ways that female bodies are controlled, policed, and punished. As Ritchie notes, rates of incarceration amongst black women have been growing rapidly, and the panelists discuss the systemic reasons for this startling growth. They also discuss some ways in which affected communities respond, and how the blind spots in carceral feminism produce terrifying results. We'll have the full panel available on our website. I'm Andrea Sterling. I am a PhD student here in the Department of African American African Diaspora Studies, also known as AAADS. Hi, I'm Andrea Ritchie. I have been working on issues of policing and criminalization of uh, black women, girls, and LGBT people and LGBT people of color um, over the past couple of decades. Doing that from my own experience as a black lesbian who's also an immigrant to the United States and I recently wrote a book called Invisible No More, Police Violence Against Black Women and Women of Color, and I've had the privilege of being in conversation with my fellow panelist, Vicki Law, in the past, and she's really awesome, and you should hear everything she has to say, and I can't wait to hear what Andrea has to say. Oh, thank you. Uh, my name is Vicki Law. I am a freelance journalist that focuses on the intersections of incarceration, gender, and resistance, or the shorthand with women in prison when I talk to people. I am the author of Resistance Behind Bars. I work with women in prison across the country to produce Tenacious, a zine of art and writings by women in prison. I am very happy to be here in conversation with these two brilliant Andreas, whom I do not share a name with. And also one small housekeeping note on the movement tip. So I noticed that there are audience members of all ages here. And so we have to keep in mind that when we hear kids' noises, this is not an annoyance, but this is a sound of our movement growing. And we really need to respect and honor that. Women make up the fastest growing prison and jail population in the US. What are women being criminalized for? So I think this Andrea was going to start um, <laughs> on that one. So yeah, I think this is how many people here have seen the 13th and how many of you have read the new Jim Crow and how many of you knew based on that, that the women's prison population has increased by 700% since 1970. Well, not based on what you read there, right? based on what you learned somewhere else. That's not been part of this conversation about the new Jim Crow and mass incarceration, and nor has the fact that the rate of uh, increase in the women's population in prison has outpaced the rate of increase in the men's population by 50% over that same time period. And then the population of women in jails has increased 14 times, so double that amount over the same time period. So in some ways, women might not be doing as much hard time in, in prisons, but they might be doing as much time just in different cages, in jails, where they might be in for overnight, over the weekend, 10 days, 30 days, 60 days, 90 days, um, anything up to less than a year, you're spending it in a jail where there's even less medical care available, even less programming available, even fewer services and supports upon re-entry. So there's just, it's a much worse condition in some ways, if that's possible, to be doing time. So 
that's kind of an untold story, an invisible story in the conversation about mass incarceration. Black women are being incarcerated still at twice the rate of white women. There's been a lot of conversation about the changing racial dynamics of incarceration under the opioid epidemic, but the reality is there's still a gross racial disparity um, in terms of black women. And while many of us have heard that one in three black men will face incarceration in their lifetime, many of us don't know that one in two black trans women will face incarceration in their lifetimes. So actually the most significantly incarcerated population in the country is not black men, but black trans women. Most of us also don't know that the population that experiences the greatest racial disparity in incarceration is actually indigenous people, so compared to the population. So what's driving those numbers is, is um, kind of what my book is about. So it helps to know what people are locked up for. So the Prison Policy Initiative just put out a kind of analysis of what the charges are. And basically, most folks know that that dramatic rise in uh, women's prison population was driven primarily by the war on drugs, particularly in the 80s. And that's definitely still a third of people in both prisons and jails. And the other third tends to be crimes of poverty, theft, what criminalization of welfare, quote unquote, fraud, which I don't know how it can be fraud when you're not given enough money to live on, but shoplifting, other crimes that are related to being poor and surviving. Um, and then for federal and state prisons, a good third or more are incarcerated for violent crimes. But often those crimes are crimes committed in self-defense or crimes that women are being held responsible for that were actually committed by other people. So for instance, uh, there's a woman in prison in Oklahoma, Tambaleo Hall, who um, is incarcerated because her abusive partner hurt her child. And she's just being incarcerated as being responsible somehow for that happening. There's a woman in East Baton Rouge, Louisiana right now who's facing charges for the death of her child because an off-duty police officer drove his car into hers at 94 miles an hour, but somehow because she supposedly didn't secure the car seat exactly properly, she's somehow responsible criminally for her child's death when someone else drove the car into her car. So those are the ways in which women get charged with violent crimes um, in addition to self-defense and being criminalized for that instead of celebrated for surviving. So that's the prison population. The jail population is similarly a third drug offenses, a third crimes of poverty and survival, which includes prostitution-related offenses, which are one of the top five ways women wind up in prison. And then the other third for jail population is like public order offenses. So like disorderly conduct or being homeless and sort of urinating in public or camping in public or sitting in public or breathing in public or, you know, panhandling, whatever. And so there's a lot to be then learned from that in terms of what kinds of policing and criminalization drive those numbers. Politics of the past influence our lives today. How is that criminalization a continuation <clears throat> of the past? So there are a few examples given. So settler colonialism, slavery, convict leasing, immigration laws and bans, gender policing, etc. I think that this is a really important and good question for us to have as an early question. And it's one that I have a feeling multiple of us will be able to comment on. I find that there's a tendency for us to not really recognize that we shouldn't be examining the present in a vacuum. Mm -hmm. I see this a lot in organizing spaces as well, where we give general lip service to the past, mm -hmm. but aren't actively thinking about how the past and the definitions that have been put on certain bodies continue to inform how we see certain people today. Even if we think we have a liberal mindset, we have to keep in mind how these age-old ideologies are still within us. We learn them consciously and subconsciously, and it takes a lot of time for us to get rid of them. 
So if we're thinking about the way that we see certain races and certain people, we can go back to slavery, for example, and the way that black women were constructed on the plantation. So we know these three major tropes of black women. We have the Jezebel, the very hypersexual black woman, the temptress. We also have kind of the mammy figure, the essentially asexual, larger woman who's meant to kind of be a mother for everyone. And then we also have what we now call the sapphire, but it's essentially the black woman with an attitude, the angry black woman. On the plantation, these stereotypes were used to explain away sexual assault of black women. The idea that uh, no one would rape a mammy because who wants her? Who desires her? The idea that the Jezebel actually tempted whoever was assaulting them. And then the idea that with the sapphire or the black woman with an attitude, she needs to be broken down. And so we're using this assault against her in order to break a slave. And so if we continue and think about how these stereotypes of black women have moved throughout time, and we still see black women in this way, again, sometimes consciously, sometimes subconsciously, we recognize how we need to center this. So if we think about the fact that for black girls who are being suspended and expelled at really incredibly high rates, a lot of times the causes that are given tend to be sub objective compared to their white peers. So things like simple insubordination or general defiance, not paying attention, these kind of things that involve the teacher simply looking at that student and deciding something based on what they're seeing. And so even if we think we're trying to do some general work of being kind to everyone, if we don't recognize where a lot of these stereotypes are coming from that inform how we see each other and understand each other, then we can't really unpack that. And we can't really do the work to stop that from happening, to take that moment and to think to ourselves, does this person actually have an attitude? Is this person actually angry? One, do they have something really uh, valid to be angry about and should we honor this? Or also, two, is it how we're seeing them? Do we have a tendency to read this body in this way more than we would if they were in a white body or if it was a man or something like that? So we have to recognize how all of these things do stem from the past and inform our present and will continue to inform our future if we don't stop them. I was also going to add that these stereotypes then got codified into laws criminalizing specific bodies and specific people. So after slavery ended, we had the Black Codes in the South. The Black Codes were laws that made it illegal punishable by time in jail or prison or a convict leasing camp for doing things like being on a street corner, being out after dark, not having, you know, like being X number of people, three people on a street corner, things that were not illegal if you were white. But if you were black, they were illegal and they would get you arrested and sent off to jail and sent off to a convict leasing camp. And we see the same thing with gender around the turn of the 20th century, like 1890s, early 1900s, when more women were leaving the home, starting to work outside, and people got very nervous about you know this women's emancipation. And suddenly we saw these gender policing laws come into play and get codified. So if you were a single woman and you were caught having or accused of having premarital or extramarital sex, if you got an STD, if you were pregnant out of wedlock, if your parent just decided to go to the police precinct and say, my daughter is acting out, you would be sent to a women's reformatory. The women's reformatory was a softer, gentler cage, which we should return to later when we talk about current ways in which we address prisons and prison issues in which women were sent there to learn how to be proper wives and mothers. There was not a determinate or definite sentence. You weren't serving two to four years or one to three years. You were released when the administrators of the reformatory decided that you had been reformed. 
It is important to keep in mind that the majority of people sent to women's reformatories were white women because black women were not seen as being able to be ladylike or feminine or reformed. However, these were also lower income, lower class white women who were not going to like be able to sit in their big house and you know, like do whatever it was that white women did in their big house. These were going to be women that were going to then um, have to go work as servants or as domestics in somebody else's house rather than say working in the factories or working in a shop or working in some place with a little bit more freedom than what they had. And so we see how these stereotypes also lead to structures and institutions they continue on to this day. So it's not just that we had the black codes and now they're gone. It's like we had the we had slavery, we had the black, we had Jim Crow, we have the the war on crime, the war on drugs, you know, like and it just kind of we keep shifting that box with a different story behind it. But there is still this box and this institution that needs to be dismantled. It's Women's History Month, so we're going to answer this question deeply and fully, uh, uh-huh. maybe more so than my others. I think I would just add to the things that both my colleagues said was that the ways in which black women's bodies were policed in public spaces after slavery very much reflected these stories as well, right? Mm-hmm. So to the extent that you weren't, and particularly because the idea was that once women, once slavery supposedly ended and women left homes and stopped being domestic workers and taking mm-hmm. care of white families, the idea was that we had to find a way to get them back into white homes and taking care of white families. And so that was then accomplished through the criminal legal system rather mm-hmm. than the formal institution of slavery. And so if you were on the street and being loud yes. or not minding your children in the way that a white middle class person thought you should be, then you were deviating from the mammy stereotype and you'd be criminalized and sent back, like arrested and then convict leased back into domestic service. If you were staying on the corner and people thought you were being a Jezebel and engaging in prostitution, same thing. The theft piece felt really important in the story of Anisha and also just in this conversation. Domestic workers would also be criminalized for theft. Theft would consist of eating leftovers or sitting at a table that belonged to the employer. So basically any time a black woman who was in domestic service somehow crossed her employer or was or the employer just decided to punish her, that was one of the ways they did it, by charging with theft. And so it feels like theft is constantly this theme around black women, whether it's welfare fraud, whether it's you know immediately post-slavery, or whether it's this situation here on campus where a black woman who's a law student on campus mm-hmm. is somehow perceived as being as, think, as stealing something by her mere presence with her child. And um, we've also seen cases where black women who were trying to send their kids to public schools in neighborhoods mm-hmm. where either a family member lived or where they had lived until they became homeless and tried to keep their kids in the same school, were charged and criminalized for what was called theft of educational services, which last time I checked, public school was free, so I'm not sure how you can steal something that's free. So there's this whole narrative around black women and theft that I think drives the fact that there's a significant proportion of black women in jails and prison around theft. And I just want to say a few things about indigenous women and Asian women, because I think those women get left out of our conversations around Mm -hmm. criminalization of women, period. And they also speak to what you were saying earlier about certain laws being made specific to certain people. So the first immigration law in this country was called the Page Act, and it banned people from entering the country if they had ever engaged in prostitution. Not if they'd ever been arrested or convicted for it, but just if they'd ever traded sex for something of value, because they were considered not moral enough to come into the country. Originally, it was directly written and enforced only against Asian women, against the assumption that all Asian women inherently were prostitutes, right? Were inherently Jezebels, but of a different, through a different colonialized gaze. That persists to this day in terms of how 
prostitution is policed. And in Rhode Island in particular, but in many jurisdictions around the country, any Asian-run business is rated regularly as if it must be a front for prostitution or trafficking. That's a continuation of that history very directly. And so even though that law is no longer exclusively enforced against Asian women, it still has long-standing repercussions. There also used to be laws specifically targeting indigenous people, saying that you couldn't be an indigenous person wandering about without lawful employment on the land that was stolen from you, <laughs> and that people were criminalized around that. And indigenous women continue to be criminalized, beaten, and murdered by police officers simply for being out in public uh, and are perceived as being drunk and disorderly. And essentially, the idea is that this country in order for it to exist, indigenous people have to disappear. And to the extent that indigenous people remain resilient and stay here, then their presence is criminalized and um, abused. And that definitely targets indigenous women in particular ways that we want to make sure that we attend to. How are women resisting criminalization and abuse? Well, there are many ways that women are resisting criminalization and abuse. One of the things I want to remind people is that prisons themselves are sites of violence and abuse. So relying on policing in prisons to keep people safe often does not, either for the person who is being accused or um, as well as the person who is being harmed. Women and trans women and other folks, so to not kind of narrowly define it, but when we're talking about criminalization and abuse and gender violence, folks have built support networks, understanding that oftentimes, especially when you are a woman of color, when you call 911 as a last resort to try to deal with ongoing violence and abuse, you often end up being criminalized and subjected to violence yourself, have built support networks around violence and abuse. And these are not necessarily flashy, you know, things that you can like be like, step one, do this, step two, do this. But um, reaching out to their support networks, making sure that people are not isolated. So if any of you have ever either been in yourself or supported someone through an abusive relationship, you will know that people who abuse their significant others tend to isolate them. And so you might notice that like somebody is not around so much anymore. They don't really come out very much anymore. They don't come out by themselves almost ever. Um, and so like breaking through that kind of isolation and making sure the person doesn't face this daunting task of having to rebuild their social networks if they leave their partner. So like these are not necessarily like flashy things that you could be like, hey, look, you know, like we did this the same way that you would say like, we did a hunger strike, or we did a protest, or we did a mass mobilization, you know, or we did these things. These are kind of quieter, less flashy ways. People have also done things, and this is for all genders, but if we're going to look at women, since it's Women's History Month, and that's what we're talking about, you know, court watch, right? Like, go to your court, see what women are being charged with, see what, you know, prosecutors are doing. There have been a few instances in which people have mobilized to get rid of you know, crappy prosecutors. Like in Chicago, there was a prosecutor named Anita Alvarez. And while, you know, her big thing was being racist and covering up the police shooting of Laquan McDonald, she was also really crappy towards domestic violence survivors who were being prosecuted and was going after them for defending themselves against their abusive partners or ex-partners. And there was a mass mobilization of people who held what they called the Buy Anita campaign 
by, like by, Anita campaign, um, in which they actually mobilized. They went around to different like subways and public places. They weren't just like, you know, like in movement spaces. Like they would go out on the trains and like talk to people and be like, did you know there's a prosecutor that's coming up? Did you know you can vote for your prosecutor? Most people don't know that the prosecutor is an elected office. Did you know this is where the prosecutors stand on these issues? And they got her voted out of office. So these are things that like, if you are able to like pay attention and like go to court, see what people are doing, compile that kind of research. And this is not like a one person does this. This is like movement and community work. This is not like it is on one to five people to like do this kind of work. And then say like, hey, we need to change this. Where do you stand on domestic violence survivors? You know, like, why are you prosecuting this person? In Chicago, the new prosecutor, who's Anita Alvarez's successor, agreed to drop charges against one domestic violence survivor who was facing murder charges for defending herself, agreed to a plea bargain that allowed another woman to go home after her original conviction had been overturned, but she spent 13 years in prison for defending herself. And under Anita Alvarez, she might have spent another 27 years in prison. So doing things like that, organizing support networks. Like, so when you're reading through the local news and you notice like, you know, like Jane Smith has been arrested in the like killing of her boyfriend because there was a domestic dispute, ask questions, be like, what, else, what is the news not telling us? What's not happening here? I'm gonna bring up the story of Grisha Meadows who was a 14 year old black girl living in Warren, Ohio, who shot her abusive father. And she shot and killed him, and she was arrested, and she was held in juvenile detention. And in Ohio, as in many states, when you have been involved in a killing, the prosecutor, the juvenile prosecutor, can make a decision as to whether or not to try you as an adult. So this little 14-year-old girl might have been tried as an adult, and people mobilized around this. They didn't let her disappear. The original news stories were a little weird and off, like, you know, 14-year-old girl shoots father, you know, the end. And they started calling the prosecutor and they said, you know, are you going to try her as an adult? If she had been tried and convicted as an adult, she would have spent life in prison. Mm -hmm. Think about that. Think about what you were doing at 14. And if something had bad had happened to you, or if a series of bad things had happened to you, or a lifetime of traumatic violent events had happened to you and your family, and you had done something at 14, what it would look like to be looking at life in prison. So they got the pro they forced the prosecutor to basically agree to charge her as a juvenile. And then they kept pushing and pushing and pushing until she was allowed to plea bargain to gosh, what was it? It was like six months in juvenile uh, mental health facility and two years on probation, and her record would be expunged when she was 21. And this would not have happened had there not been mass mobilizing around this kind of issue and that kind of support. And somebody or somebody's looking at that original article and being like, this doesn't add up. 14-year-olds don't just go around killing their parents. What else happened? And we don't know how many other people, you know, young women, older women, you know, trans people, anybody are in similar situations where nobody pays attention because nobody actually looks deeper. The way in which we protect women, queer, trans, gender nonconforming people, vulnerable people, children from violence is to meet violence swiftly and harshly with punishment and incarceration. 
And the story we just heard is what happens when we do that. The same people who have always been targeted throughout history by the state for criminalization for all the reasons we've just talked about then become the people who are targeted by the laws that are ostensibly made to protect them, right? Carceral feminism looks like saying the best way to deal with any harms that people experience in the context of prostitution or trafficking into prostitution is to punish people harder and get longer and harsher sentences for people involved in prostitution, right? And then so who suffers from that but the same black women, women of color who are trading sex for many reasons, whether it's because they have been forced to have no choice but to trade sex in order to meet their needs or are doing so because it's the best of the options available to them. We think, okay, no, we can distinguish between the people who are just offering sex for money for whatever reason who we don't want to criminalize and the bad pimps and promoters and traffickers who are harming them. And we'll really throw the book at those people and put them in cages, except that the sex industry isn't that cut and dry. You know, I might be trading and ask Victoria to mind my kids for me while I'm doing that. Well, under most promoting and pimping laws, Victoria would be charged with a much more harsh felony and could face 20 years in prison, whereas I might be charged with a misdemeanor. Or if I'm paying rent to Andrea and Andrea happens to know that this is how I make my living, suddenly Andrea is facing 20 years as a brothel keeper. Then people who are supportive, who are family members, who are community members, who are actually helping people in the sex trade stay safer are criminalized. A cab driver who might pick up someone in the sex trade and drive them somewhere knowing what they're doing could be criminalized under promoting and trafficking. And so what is going to happen in that case? Well, no one who looks like a sex worker is ever going to be able to get a cab mm-hmm. and therefore will be much less safe, actually. And when you talk to people who have been trafficked and you ask them how they got out, most of them say people around them, cab drivers, clients, co-workers, people who knew them, knew their community, and knew that there was something not right about their experience of the sex trade and spoke up. But if by speaking up, you put yourself in danger of punishment for trafficking or promoting, then you're not going to do that. And then you're isolating people further. So that's what carceral feminism does. It uses this like giant sledgehammer to deal with harm that actually involves people putting people in danger of more violence and harm. When domestic violence in the 70s and 80s, people were feeling there wasn't enough police attention, there wasn't enough attention to domestic violence, and people were not being protected by police, they decided the best way to move forward with that is to mandate police to arrest someone every single time they got a domestic violence call. Guess which arrest numbers went up? Women's arrest numbers. In some cases, by five times in jurisdictions like Los Angeles. The reason was the narratives that we talked about. When police show up and a black woman's experiencing domestic violence, they assume that she's aggressive, that she's, um, yes, that she's sapphire, or that she somehow brought it on herself through some Jezebel-like behavior, right? Or basically because throughout history, rape of black women wasn't a crime. Rape of indigenous women wasn't a crime. Black women could never stand up in a court and say, that person harmed me and get justice. That continues to play out, whether you're a 14 year old like mm-hmm. Brescia Meadows or you're Marissa Alexander defending yourself against someone who abused you. And the police response is to come and arrest you instead of celebrating your survival and prosecute you and put you in jail for 20 years. Carceral feminism is basically saying prisons and more police are the response to violence against us. And our response as a panel, it seems like, is actually that's just producing more violence and more devastation in our communities, and not just against members of our communities, but actually against the very people who were claiming to be protected. 
This has been KiteLine. Anyone affected by the prison system in any form is welcome to write us via our P.O. Box. KiteLine Radio, P.O. Box 2422, Bloomington, Indiana, 47402. KiteLine wants your feedback. You can reach us via email at kitelineradio at gmail.com or find us on Facebook. You can hear previous episodes of our show or get more information on the prisoners or stories covered on KiteLine at our website, kitelineradio.noblogs.org. You can also find our podcast on iTunes. KiteLine is intended as a means of communication between people across prison walls. We are not responsible for all views expressed on the program. WFHB, its contributors, or any affiliates airing this program are not responsible for the views expressed on the show. This has been KiteLine. Join us every Friday at 5.30 p.m. for more stories, news, and insights about the impact of prison on our communities. Thank you for listening.